0: Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure to talk with Taylor Atkins about his book Primitive Selves, Koreana in the Japanese Colonial Gaze 1910 to 1945. That came out with the University of California Press in 2010. Um, Now this is a a wonderful book. It's not just very lightly and elegantly and very humorously written, um, but it's also full of just wonderful insights on colonial history, broadly you um, I mean, even though it focuses on the Japanese colonial experience in Korea and the Korean colonial experience in the context of um, occupation by Japan, it really is broadly relevant to um, a wide range of fields, and I say that sincerely. It also includes the word the word werewolfery, as in uh, the uh, practice of or existence of werewolves or something like that, um, which I absolutely loved, and that's in the introduction. Um, and I mentioned that just to give you a sense of the playfulness of the book, as well as its really serious intellectual um, and historiographical import. This is a wonderful book to read. It's a very important book, and I had a wonderful time talking with Taylor about it, so I hope you enjoy. I tell her. Hello. We're here today at New Books in East Asian Studies to talk with Taylor Atkins about his recent book, Primitive Selves, Koreana in the Japanese Colonial Gaze, 1910 to 1945. Now, this is an exceptionally elegantly written book, a very funny book at times, um, that really, I think, successfully tells a story about a very particular context of the Japanese colonial encounter in Korea, but also informs a much wider discussion on Colonialisms um, and on Encounters more broadly. It's erudite, it's funny, um, I enjoyed it a lot, and I learned a lot from it. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Thanks for taking the time to read
0: it. No, oh, of course. <laughs> it was great. So, Taylor, you say in the acknowledgements um, in the book that the project originally began with a music mania. Um, yeah. can, you, can you start us off by saying a little bit about that and about sort of what brought you to this project in particular? Sure
1: yeah it's uh not um a predictable second monograph for somebody who wrote his first monograph on jazz in japan uh in many ways but um for me i think it really comes out of the same interest um and a, a interest i developed in korean music uh in particular uh i was really fortunate to be selected to go to a um professional development workshop at the east west center on korean culture uh in 2000 and um i i had taken some classes in korean history before uh when i was in graduate school but this really was an opportunity for me to get some more depth than that we did two weeks at uh east west center and then two weeks in in korea and um part of the part of the introduction was uh an introduction to Korean performance art and music. And a friend of mine there, um, Catherine Purcell, who teaches at uh, uh, Trident uh, Technical College in South Carolina, she and I really developed an appreciation for pansori, which is a solo form of narrative singing. And um, everything that I was learning there, I was sort of, My inclination was to look at it through sort of my Japanese background, and so I I asked myself what Japanese thought about these this form of art and other forms that have a a very much of a populist, a people power kind of, uh, um, uh, I guess, irreverence to them, and sometimes very biting, satirical. Uh, attitude towards uh, the elites the traditional elites in korea and um I wondered how they fared during the colonial period and uh that's what got me started on it was trying to and, and i don't I'm not really sure that i <laughs> i found all the answers to those questions that I would like to have had um, uh and it certainly, you know, I had to lower my sights a little bit in some ways, but it led me into some areas that I hadn't actually thought I would go into, uh, such as, um, uh, you know, heritage management um, and, um, you know, religion policy and things of that nature. Um, so it did it did go a little bit ways off from and from where I anticipated, but. I it, I was I was glad to you know it was a really fun study to do actually
0: And I think one of the wonderful things about the book and the way you have written for us is that the book is really honest about the questions that it claims to answer and the questions that it just wants to sort of raise and and contribute to and not necessarily wrap up cleanly. And that's really refreshing to find in an academic monograph. And it's also very, I think, inspiring for other scholars who may similarly be interested in topics like this that are very explicitly comparative. And I mean that in the best possible way and explicitly um, transnational, but may feel like, well, if if I'm not an absolute expert in all of the languages and all of the little bitty contexts that touch on every part of this, I can't even, you know, be in a position from which to say anything. And I think um, your book is really an inspiration in that respect.
1: Well, you know, that comes, I think, from a lot of things. It's just my personality. I, I realize. More, better than anybody the things that I don't know and can't do but um you know when I'm teaching I, I iner- invariably you know sp- especially something like world history or I, I'm in a position a lot of times where I have to either learn something that I don't know or admit to my students that I don't know the answers and I guess some people aren't comfortable doing that but I, I am <laughs> and um I uh I mean, I did make an effort to to learn how to read written Korean, and it came in handy in several cases during the research process, but I never developed a kind of facility where I felt like I could, you know, really read uh, something in depth and, and, and get a lot out of it. Um, and so that really, I, I made a point of only answering questions that I was qualified to, to address. But... I, I was getting enough encouragement along the way and several, a lot of it from Koreanists to stay with it because in spite of the fact that I didn't have all the expertise that I would like to have had to answer all the questions I had, um, I think I still had something to say about it. And that's what, that was their perspective on it too. Um, you know, Michael Robinson in particular was really encouraging in that regard. Um, so I think you know somebody with better preparation in Korean language could have written um a a really good study on this topic too and it might and arguably it could be, it would have be been better but um I uh I still think that I didn't I didn't necessarily need to hold my tongue but I but I did need to be very open about the kinds of things that I couldn't couldn't do and had no business trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, but there are lots of things that the book did do and did try to do, and I think was very successful at that. And so I know um, we have a limited time here, so I'm going to move directly to that. Sure. Um, so if we move um, to the kind of the need of the book, um, and like I've said before, that the writing style is very engaging, and and the evidence of this is right in the fourth line of the introduction where you use the word werewolfery, which I love, and I wish everybody <laughs> used that word.
1: Um, I think I invented that, but I don't know.
0: Well, I hope it gets wider circulation now. <laughs> um, so you, you in the introduction, um, kind of set out the uh, the arguments and the kinds of approaches that are going to resurface later in the book. Um, So I'll get right to that. And so um, the introduction lays out what you um, offer us as the three principal arguments of the book. Um, And I'll sort of take them one by one. Okay. So um, the first one, um, the book, um, as you say, challenges a kind of prevailing historiographical characterization of imperial Japanese attitude toward um, Koreans and their culture as sort of bent on assimilation and very um, kind of contemptuous of Korean cultural life and Korean cultural things. Um, this kind of effort to use your work in order to um, challenge this contemporary historiographical. Mode in different ways is something that seems very important throughout the book. So, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, The uh, at the time when I was doing the research, actually, I had already sent the book to I sent the manuscript to to press at last before I found out about Mark Caprio's book on assimilation in Korea. But um, he does a good job of explaining, making a lot of the same kinds of points, although you know with a different kind of angle and more focus on assimilation policy and but he does make the point that you know assimilation didn't mean one thing Uh, it meant a lot of different things to different people um but and it it was and it's much more complicated than sort of the cultural genocide narrative that has come out of um you know what's called uh, nationalist historiography in in post-liberation Korea um, and at, at no point is my is my uh, book an effort to try to minimize the the suffering that Koreans you know uh, uh, felt uh, under the Japanese regime or the brutality of the Japanese regime but more to to demonstrate that the Regime, we speak of the regime in a singular, and in some ways that that obfuscates the fact that there are many different actors with many different motivations, feelings about Korea, and ideas about what the best way to govern Korea were. Um, and uh, I guess that you know it didn't take very long, too much digging for me to to find evidence that um, the um, cultural genocide narrative and the the supposed Japanese contempt that was behind that um, was only part of the story, and uh, that there were uh, plenty of Japanese in positions of authority, uh, either within the government or outside of the government, positions of influence, who had very different ideas about the value of Korean culture, the dignity of its people, and the the way that the Japanese should go about managing that, um, that diversity that they found now within their empire once they started expanding um, and uh, that this was uh, their their views were often more often than not uh, colored by this uh, belief in the common racial ancestry of Koreans and Japanese um, and that, that sense of connection that they at the time regarded and many today still believe was unique in the colonial world between uh uh, subject population and in the, in the the metropolitan uh, society, and uh, because of that, they there was a, a quite a bit of um, value ascribed to, to uh, Korean culture in terms of the knowledge that could be gained about Japanese culture, uh, and for that for that reason, as well as for other sort of more emotional attachments, or you know. Tastes that people developed—they—they um, they thought that there was a lot in Korea that was worth um, preserving, pretty much as it was. And um, in addition to that, the sense that, that many of these people of this generation had witnessed pretty profound cultural transformation in their own society. I mean, uh, you know, to an industrial, uh, constitutional monarchy, um, urbanized society. Um, and and a profound awareness of things that they had um, abandoned to have that. And some of the people whose work I looked at profoundly, where they were profoundly afraid of committing the same kind of um, upheaval, cultural violence, if you will, in Korea that that had been wrecked in their own home. And it's, it's not necessarily to say that they... They were Luddites or anything. I mean, they clearly saw advantages to to being modern, but um, they were also aware, as many people are, in, in, were in Europe and America at the time of, of of things that were lost in order to be modern. Some of those things back being valuable.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the way the way I describe it to, to people today is that you know, if the if the zombie apocalypse happened now, you know. A whole bunch of us, especially in North America, would have no, we wouldn't survive three days because most of us don't know how to grow food and or or do anything that, you know, some of the basic things that humans have done most of their lives to keep us all, you know, the species intact and alive. And, um, and so I, I tell students, you know, it's not like people in the older days were dumber than us, but they had different kinds of knowledge. And to have the knowledge that we have today enables us to put together smartphones and all that kind of crap. You know, we've we've clouded, we've pushed out of our collective consciousness and memory any kind of the the technical know-how that generations past had. Um, you know, that enabled us to get to this point. And so I, I I'm not unsympathetic to this idea that as we modernize, we've lost something valuable.
0: And I think one of the other things that the book kind of um, comes back to that speaks just to this um, is the importance that this sort of, this gaze, this colonial gaze of um, Japan onto Korea, and I know I'm completely simplifying that, but I'll just sort of put it that way, Mm -hmm. is as much a gaze on the self as on the other, right? Because you make this point that um, there's an idea... In the in this process of Japanese colonial um, encounters with and in and on Korea of um, j- sort of Japan and Korea Japanese and Koreans being from a kind of common source or common sort of it's called at some moments in the literature you're talking about a race or racial stock um, but just at diverging points along the sort of temporal. Access right. So there's sort of. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's this this notion of kind of gazing at um, Koreans and Koreana as a way of gazing at um, some kind of nostalgic um, image of um, a Japanese self is very important to this story, at least as I read it.
1: Yeah, it is, um, and it was a common a sort of at some point late 19th early 20th century was. Rarely questioned assumption that um, the only way to account for the development uh, of some societies, and not of and while others don't develop, and by that I mean, you know, into centralized states, industrial economies, things like that, um, is that basically um, some people don't have history. By which you mean they don't undergo change over time. And uh, that people could, you know, live in the same year, say 1910, but not live in the same historical moment or stage, if you will. And um, so that was not anything that was unique to Japan, but very much was borrowed uh, from, you know, Western sociological and anthropological thought. It was... Part of the principles of social Darwinism, of this uneven development, and um, it was a way for Japanese to to make sense of and understand um, why Korea still had, you know, um, centralized uh, uh, king you know kingship that was beholden to the Chinese. Um, and concerned, overly concerned with precedent and with um, you know maintaining hereditary privileges for certain people when their own society had moved on to being more industrialized and you know having a constitution, having a parliament, having in- industry, you know, or industry in the sense of smokestacks and mechanization and, and working classes and things like that. Um, and uh, so. And you know China proved because and it, you know it helps that they when they fought a war against China they China becomes the boogeyman sort of in the Japanese narrative of Korean history that um, China really China's backwardness um sort of compels the Koreans to be backward as well because of this notion that the Ch- Koreans are always slavishly following the Chinese example which is. Greatly oversimplified, of course, for those of us who know something about Korean history, but um, wasn't entirely untrue either. Um, and so, that's a convenient way for the Japanese to 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 um, uh, to understand Korea, you know, and the stage it was at, and what and what Japan's responsibility toward Korea might be.
0: But I think you also, at the same time, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and and they should. So, listeners, you should read the book, um, and not just because werewolfery is is involved here. Um, but all <laughs> so,
1: proceeds go to charity. Right, so. right. That's right.
0: <laughs> that's right. True. Um, So there is, um, there's a really wonderful, um, discussion in the introduction situating this within new imperial studies. And I won't ask you, um, too much about that so that we can sort of get into the the stories and the meat and potatoes. And then, um, there's also a really wonderful chapter that I also will mention for listeners, but won't ask you too much about, um, that really situates this story within a longer sort of temporal history of, um, of uh, sort of uh, the colonial period from late 19th century to liberation, but going back to discourses from antiquity um, mm. and forward. And so um, sort of chapter one really acts as a really nice historical background and sort of overview and account of encounters that go on to be central to this later yeah. colonial period later in the book um, and talks about the role of and the discourse of culture and cultural rule specifically.
1: Yeah
0: as part of this story in, in a really sophisticated way that really, um, I think sheds a lot of light on this, um, on this phenomenon. Did you want to talk about that at all? The sort of the importance of the idea of cultural rule? Uh, yeah, if,
1: but if I may, <laughs> okay. uh, I wanted to say something too, I guess this is a yeah. more of a methodological thing about putting that first chapter together. Sure. It was the last one that I wrote. And, um, as you may have noticed, uh, a lot of it is based on contemporary newspaper accounts and that was so much fun to do i i could have very easily and defensibly i guess uh put it together with just constant reference to secondary sources and i do make a lot of references to that but it was so much more enjoyable if i knew that a particular event had happened like when you know Governor General Saito arrives, you know, I knew that somebody had thrown a bomb under his carriage, you know, so go and look up the New York Times account of that story, or when the King Kuljong sent the delegations of the Hague to look that up, you know, the contemporary coverage, and there were so many wonderful anecdotes and textures and things like that that I was, that I could get from those first hand accounts, Or maybe second or third, you know, because the reporting at the time, I'm sure, wasn't very sophisticated on in foreign affairs. But there was just something about doing it that way that made it so much more enjoyable to write, and I and I hope makes it more enjoyable to read rather than just sort of um, narrating it through other historians who've already narrated it. So um, that I, you know, I I I was really I, I had a ball doing that now with regard to cultural rule, you know that was that 's a phrase that 's been used so many times and uh, by the time I got to the point where I had to to deal with it, I just started looking at it over and over, and I just kept saying to myself, "What the heck does that mean?" and I just turned it over and over and over in my mind uh, and because uh, I knew it, it couldn 't mean just one thing and it, and eventually I came up. with... You know, by contextualizing it within just sort of the general um, idea of what bunka, or culture, meant in Japan at that time, how it was sort of randomly applied to so many different ideas and and material products, and sort of the cachet that it seemed to have, and the the multivalence of its meanings it struck me as 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 a form of branding basically you know to 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 label uh, a new approach to colonial management um with with the same label that you would put on a pair of underwear that you know God knows what culture underwear looks like i I have, I have no idea but um
0: underoos, but, i think i'm sorry under <laughs> yeah,
1: Batman right. under superman underoos, yeah um And uh, and that it could mean lots of different things. And I and I guess as I tackled that and went over it and over again, I came to feel that it didn't really have to say it didn't have to represent any one approach. Um, It could mean um, you know uh, it could mean a more of assimilationist kind of imposing Japanese culture um, in its hybrid form. You know, Japanese slash Western modern culture on the koreans it could mean um uh allowing more room for korean uh cultural attitudes and practices to play a role in the colonial management and uh and in 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 the end it could mean all of those things at the same time just depending on what you were talking about you could justify any kind of um, approach or any kind of strategy with reference to cultural rule you could justify um uh, opening schools by cultural rule you could justify uh, building factories or roads by cultural rule you could justify um, creating a council of Korean elders and notables you know, to, to advise the government in terms of cultural rule and it didn't obligate you to any one particular thing <laughs> and you know but there, there were so many uh, I, I think it gave I think that to some degree, it gave the colonial government a degree of latitude to try new things. Um, and, you know, Michael Robinson talks about this and says, and I, I agree with him completely on this. He says uh, it took us kind of a leap of faith for um, the Japanese regime to to try something new. They didn't necessarily know it was going to work out this well. Uh, and he, he and other historians have characterized it as a way of... Um, I mean, the, I guess the worst way to put it is co-opting, but another way of putting it is giving us, Koreans a sense of investment in the in the project, um, and and that it it gets there, it wins the cooperation of a you know sub- substantial number of Koreans, and uh, to that to that extent, it, it it was it was a kind of a bold move with uncertain outcomes and and in in many ways it worked it probably prolonged colonial rule or made it a little bit more uh, easier to manage than it might have been otherwise if they'd continued doing what they did in the 1910s. Mm-hmm.
0: And now, so you're mentioning cooperation here, and that. Um, why don't we then use that as a, a way to sort of jump ahead, actually, to the third chapter, which is really um, a very rich account of this. And so this is a chapter called Curating Koreana, the Management of Culture in Colonial Korea. And you're sort of, you're looking here at the kind of, the nature of the way that the government general of Chosun, so GGC, um, later on in the book, and its, cur- its curation of Korean archaeological sites, historical documents, folkways, drama, and art objects, really sort of uh, worked on multiple levels, both to kind of, not just to kind of manage and control and archive and collect um, Korean cultural relics and objects but also to sort of involve um, sort of Koreans in the process I mean this is a very complex kind of um, situation that really I think speaks to the kind of cooperation but the sort of Janus face of cooperation that you're you're talking about um, so can you speak a little bit to that? Um, in sp- in particular, um, one of the things that really struck me here is this is one of many cases that in these chapters you're making a point of giving us um, a comparative context um, to sort of put right. this in a larger dialogue. Um, and uh, the one, as a Chinese historian, the one that struck mm-hmm. me most is the you know the use of archaeology, historiography, and museology by China to sort of justify its claims in Tibet. Right?
1: Yes, right.
0: Um, so. It, can you speak a little bit about that and how that played out in the context of the Japanese Colonial Administration, the GGC in particular, and its curation of Korean cultural artifacts and places?
1: Yeah. Um, it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's a big question. Uh, you know, I think, I think to some degree, and I, I, don't, I may not make this very explicit in the book, but now it's striking me, um, in the 19th century, there had been quite, you know, uh, uh, a precedent set for heritage management practices, uh, which is a fancy word for looting among colonial powers, you know, in uh, colonized areas, um, and and done for, you know, what they gradually came to express as the good of all humankind. You know that these these things they may be based in this locale, but they belong to all of humanity and the people who you know, live near them, are incapable of recognizing their importance, let alone preserving them, and, and therefore they must be removed. And, and it became, you know, it became just this playground sport of, uh, you know, who has the greatest number of antiquities and their size and all that kind of thing. I think to some degree, you know, th- there's a precedent there that the Japanese can and do follow, but um, because of the common, the idea of a common racial ancestry, um, there's a search for their own sort of origins in Korea, so it has that motivation added to it. But you know, I, I begin that chapter with a quote from a, a document that was published in English, actually called "Thriving Chosun," and and they, there's a kind of a remarkable statement in there about, uh, and I don't have the exact quote, but toward the end of the the quotation that I use there about the importance of the desire to educate Koreans about their own patrimony, you know. Uh, and again, there's an implicit critique of the previous regime for neglecting that and not an entirely unfounded or, you know, unfair critique either. But um, there, there's some allowance made there for the fact that Koreans, you know, have this uh, a really great cultural heritage, material and cultural heritage, and that they should be proud of that. Um and to a degree, you know, and we don't know if it would have happened without the Japanese there's no point in even exploring that really in my view, but um the Japanese put those put those artifacts and put those um put that heritage out there for the public to see um and most Koreans you know wouldn't have known about you know some kind of relic or some kind of historical event or object in a different part of the country if the if it wasn't put in a museum or cataloged or or publicized or lectured about on the radio or something like that. And and again this is a kind of a, a risky maneuver on the part of Japan because as I say there as well they're sort of handing to Koreans a set of symbols and uh, emblems of their national and cultural distinctiveness and cultural accomplishment that could be, and eventually are used to mobilize a kind of a Korean, distinctive Korean identity within the Japanese empire. And in some ways that's at cross purposes, in most ways that's at cross purposes to what the Japanese hope to achieve.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And um, so, and again, a lot of the people who were working on this, they did it because they just were—they were what we would call today geeks about the, about Korean stuff. They just really were entranced by it, and a lot of times they worked with with Korean informants or Korean um, uh, colleagues to to make this stuff, to preserve it, and to make it, you know, accessible and available um, to a wider public.
0: And at the same time, if I can sort of add to that as a way of yeah. also bringing in something from the previous chapter, um, this curation of K- Kuriana, of Koreana is of a piece with and is happening alongside this cultural ethnography. Yes, so, right. it's, so it's both about a kind of preservation of Korean heritage, but it's also, as you show, I think really beautifully in the previous chapter, a mode of self-preservation and self-critique as well, right? So it's not just about sort of gazing at another, but it's about sort of locating a nostalgic version of, of a sort of Japanese self, and perhaps right. um, you, you know through that, and, and you have this wonderful account um, in the previous chapter as well that I just want to highlight of the importance of shamanism here, yeah. Um, yeah. to this. And, and, that, and shamanism, um, I mean, th- this is something for listeners who may be interested in religious studies or religious history, or, although this isn't Obviously, just about religion, right? But um, this is an element of the book that may not be obvious just from seeing the title and the description. That it's sh- the, the shamanism is an incredibly important part of the story, both in this chapter and also sort of through the end of the book. And right. it's not just about a sort of way to identify some kind of primordial like Korean ness, but it's also a way to speak to a kind of larger cohesive Northeast Asian culture wow. that binds Korea and Japan together in a sort of common history.
1: Right. Well, you know, because a lot of the people, they recognize that um, the same kinds of, of practices and, you know, by which we mean uh, purification rituals or exorcisms or uh, spirit mediumship, that this that there's a long history of that in, in uh, Japan as well, and that like um, like in uh in Japan uh a lot of it is was traditionally at least run by females yeah. you know and um but the the, the difference became then that uh, in um in Japan because of the emperor system and the 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 relationship of the imperial family to the to the pantheon of, of kami or spirits um there's kind of a, a, a unity imposed upon shamanism in, Korea, in Japan and a name given to it Shinto you know originally to distinguish it from Buddhism that um, provides a degree of coherence that is less well developed in the Korean context and that was one of the things that was frustrating about shamanism to the Japanese authorities is and they apparently they made some efforts to create an umbrella institutions that can regulate and, and sort of, um, um, regulate shamanistic practices and, and get shamans to work together and that sort of thing, which is what they did with the Buddhist sects. You know, they create this sort of umbrella system of, of temples, um, temple management, but, um, they never really achieved that in, in Korea. They, that, that sort of degree of unity, um, that you see in Shinto, uh, I mean, to my, to my understanding, it's still not been achieved. I mean, there's a term for it, Musok in, in Korean, but it's not really the same thing. And it remains kind of, um, you know, uh, unrepentantly decentralized, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is also a point of potential future, um, comparative history for people who focus on Central Asian history, actually. I mean, yeah. you know, sort of the use of shamanism as a marker of cultural identity yeah. that sort of is an instrument for bringing together into a common right. sort of group a wide swath of like the nomadic peoples. And I'm using air quotes for listeners right here. Yeah, um, I get it. It's something that's very much a, fo- a feature of historiography of Central Asia right now as well. Sure. It's,
1: right. Um, it's interesting because you know shamanism. Uh, Korean intellectuals have had, have a really complex relationship with shamanism because there's there's so much uh, uh, so much of the idea of a Korean unique like a unique Korean identity is invested in, in shamanistic practice. But on the other hand, you know intellectuals also regarded as you know, as retrograde as superstition, um, and and uh, you know. So the Korean state, you know, under Pak Chung-hee, you know, at at one time they're you know, they're they're saying these shamanistic dances are intangible cultural treasures, but on the other hand, they're actively trying to discourage and suppress shamanism as a kind of charlatanism, you know, in in in, in everyday life. <laughs> it's 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 really, really interesting. And people, you know, like Laurel Kendall, people who I've really studied that in depth can do more justice to it than I can, but it's it 's a fascinating subject
0: but the, um, so the the epilogue actually um, has this really wonderful discussion of what you just mentioned the importance of intangible um, national mm-hmm. treasures or cultural properties, um, and this sort of the the importance of the fact that that notion is premised on a notion of tradition as sort of stasis, right? Yeah. So, right. I'll, I'll sort of, um, it's a really striking discussion, and I just want to point listeners to that in the epilogue. But I, I can't let you go without asking you, um, about the, um, the fourth chapter, right? There's, sure. there's a wonderful chapter, chapter four, um, that talks about the, the importance of the cultural impact of Koreana on Imperial Japan. So this isn't just about the sort of frontier cultures, you know, of the, right. of the colony. This is about really the impact that this has and the really co- complicated relationship that Koreana has, um, on Imperial Japan. Um, And in particular, you look at um, sort of folk songs and you look at the wonderful choreography of um, uh, one of Imperial Japan's most famous celebrities and dancers, Cho Song Hui, and you look at um, Kisen courtesan Mm -hmm. entertainers. But I want to ask you in particular to speak a little bit about the um, Arirang Phenomenon Mm -hmm. because it early in the book you tell us that one of the things that started you on this project is going hunting for Arirangs.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so
0: can you speak a little bit to that in the in the larger context of the book and the chapter?
1: Sure, um, I don't think it's possible to explain why Arirang was so popular in Japan in the 1930s and 40s and apparently I've, I know some Japanese who said that when they were at school, they they sang it. So, I mean, it, it's still something that a lot of Japanese know. And I, I really don't know if I can explain that. But what was um, really interesting to me was the way that, um, first of all, Arirang is used, uh, is claimed by Japanese and used to um, uh, express some... Um, pretty conventional uh, thematic elements of Japanese popular song, you know, like just nostalgia and missing home or being parted from the lovers or whatever, and to do this repeatedly, and and I, you know, over the course of, and I, I, you know, I compiled this discography, and it's just amazing how many times they came back to it, and that's the only real evidence that we would have that it was very popular, but that's pretty good evidence that it was, you know, or that they, w- they would quit, they would quit doing it. Mm-hmm. But they just, uh, it was amazing how many they, they made. Um,
0: and for, to, to ask you, um before you go on, for listeners yeah. who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, can you um, say a little bit about what an Arirang is and sort of oh, how sure. what makes an Arirang an Arirang? For oh, those who don't know anything yeah. about this.
1: There, well, you know, there's, there's a there's a notion that Arirang is a is a song, but it's not really a song. It's uh, it's a <laughs> more of a collection of songs. And depending on which region of Korea you're in, um, the refrain and even in the, the title might be different. So, um, you know, uh, in um, in uh, the Seoul area in Gyeonggi uh, uh, province, you know, the refrain would be. It would be a call and response kind of thing where they sing, um, sing adi dong ad, ad adi dong ad adi yo. i was not going to sing for you. You'll thank me. <laughs> um, and then they then there would be a verse that uh, would you know uh, explain whatever emotion somebody was feeling. Then they'd sing the refrain again. And in other places, like in the Southwest, it would be adi adi dong suri suri dong. And so, you know, wherever you go in Korea, there's these, there's these songs, and you know, it's really difficult to pin down where they came from or anything. But um, in the course of my research, it 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 became pretty clear to me that this is not an old traditional song, but rather a modern one, and it really it, it cr- achieves the the iconic status that it has now, as recently as 1920s. When you know they start writing them down in folk song anthologies, but then it's also a theme song to a movie, and um, and nowadays, I mean, it's uh, considered to be the national song of, of Koreans. When I say Koreans instead of Korea, because there's not one Korea, you know, and both people in both states embrace it. Um, there's Arirang T network. There's Arirang Korean restaurants everywhere. I mean. It, and one of my favorite stories is when I was in Cambodia at the uh, Angkor complex, I went to uh, the 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 one the the area that's still run down that they haven't tried to preserve called Ta Rome. There were some Khmer musicians there who had been uh, injured by landmines. They had these various injuries and deformities and there's a lot of Korean tourists there, and they saw some Koreans coming and they started playing audiodong on their Khmer instruments. And the Koreans went eight, and they just were singing "Adi Dong," and I was so glad to be there. And it, but it demonstrates how you know popular and powerful this song is. Um, the, uh, I guess the the other thing about the "Adi song to me that was really fascinating thematically with what I was trying to accomplish is the way that it's used to critique. Um, songwriting and musical expression in modern Japan, uh, particularly in this essay by Koba Masao, who does one of the first arrangements for Jap- for Japanese uh, market. And, you know, he basically says that unlike the music that we make today, uh, this is very emotionally raw, direct, unpretentious, um, unself conscious uh, this is as as basic and primordial kind of music expression as as is possible, and he's using it as a way to critique what is developing in the you know the pop music industry in- J- in Japan at that point of which he is very much a part and a beneficiary <laughs> and um you know uh he believes that Korean music has a kind of directness uh at the gut level that Japanese folk and popular music doesn't have. And um, I, just, I just found that incredibly fascinating that, uh, and further proof of the kind of respect that um, Japanese could have for Korean expressive culture and, and how they could use it to criticize what they themselves were doing.
0: Right. And that's a theme that also, um, I think, comes up really nicely in a chapter or in a really a chapter in an extended discussion in the book that we won't have time to get to, but that I want to highlight for listeners, which is a similarly nuanced account of the kind of. Korean culture, and especially photographic images mm-hmm. of Korean culture as primitive, but primitive, again, having this dual sense of not just um, a kind of infantilizing of a culture, right. but also a sort of nostalgic um, praising, almost, of aspects of a culture that have been lost in one's own culture, at least right. in terms of the the ethnographers who are doing this work. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Taylor, um, I don't want to keep you too long, and I know um, we we'll still got some time. You still have a little bit of time, so but I want to make sure that we have time to sort of to wrap up before you have to go. It too, um, I want to um, signal to listeners too that I, as the book begins with um, movies and von Helsing and werewolves, it ends. <laughs> It ends with this wonderful metaphorical decapitation, right? Um, you give us this wonderful image of um, the sort of the top and the spire of what had been the building that was the center of the colonial administration of the GGC, um, And the spire gets lopped off in, I think, 1995 and relocated um, to the Independence Hall Korea's mm-hmm. grounds. And um, for anyone who enjoys the craft of writing or um, enjoys reading the work of someone who clearly revels in and um, respects and takes pleasure in the craft of writing as a historian this is also just a wonderful moment among many in the book where you describe this as a scattering of bones and putting of a head on display really in the context of this kind of architectural repurposing right mm-hmm. um, there's- not,
1: not everyone has taken to that that passage as well as you have but really. Thank you for understanding what I was trying to
0: do. <laughs> oh, I think I think it's great, and it's it's clearly a sort of metaphorical moment, and it really I think creates this kind of lovely parallel structure in the book that really brings it together. Um, so there's a lot in this chapter that looks ahead toward the post-colonial context mm-hmm. um, and sort of resituates this story into what happens after the core of the story you're telling. Is there anything um, about that sort of post-colonial context that you want to highlight is particularly important for the story you're trying to tell for listeners who haven't had a chance to read that chapter or the book?
1: Yeah, um I, I, re- I rewrote that one pretty extensively I had some really good um, comments from uh, Sabina freestück about that and one of the things that that emerged is that um, and I, I don't like I don't typically don't like talking in, in terms of simple binaries in this case the, you know the autocratic South Korean state and the and the people, the minju, if you will, but um, there does seem to me to be a pretty profound um, uh, struggle that was going on regarding cultural heritage. Um, in uh, you know, I think it started around the time that the cultural properties uh, system was developed. You know, around 1962 and picks up steam as the um, pro-democracy movements uh, of the 70s and 80s go on, where um, the state wants to use traditional expressive culture to uh, create a sense of national belonging and cohesion. And uh, the pro-democracy advocates are, won't have it. I mean, they, they agree that it's valuable. But they do not want to see... But they also think its essence is something that is uh, anti-authoritarian. And uh, they try to... And basically, it's a struggle between trying to ossify, uh, you know, in a perfect form, these cultural forms, and keeping them alive in the streets by writing new plays and applying them to... Uh, or new, choreographing new dances, writing new songs... And, and putting them in the context of, of you know, the modern pro- poli- political struggle. And uh, as I developed, as that theme developed and I was, you know, seeing more and more evidence of that, it, I, it just really was profoundly moving to me to see um, them working towards what was apparently the same goal, which is preserving aspects of Korea that make it, make Koreans Korean, right, you know, identifiably Korean, but on the other hand, having this profound disagreement about what its essence really was. Is it, you know, national unity and cultural coherence, or is it, you know, objecting to um, authority and uh, the abuse of authority, objecting to the uh, cynical attempts to manipulate and own culture and um, I uh, I mean there, uh, there's a lot in that in that epilogue about sort of the contradictions inherent in cultural properties management but that struggle in and of itself I thought was really um, striking to me um, and you know just as one very very specific example you know you would you'd have you know government subsidized uh, performances of Pansori operas you know and they would use usually be one of the five canonical uh, libretti that would be performed at a national theater but then you've got this other guy this guy named Kim Chiha who writes this fabulous Pansori and it's just as graphic and raw and, and raunchy as any of the traditional ones um called Five Bandits that's critiquing the modern state. And um, you know, he's who's who's the real preserver here, you know, the guy who's who's keeping the art relevant or the people who are, you know, putting on sort of this museum piece. And and I think it it says a lot about it says a lot about tradition and modernity and the sort sort of the the way it flummoxes (laughs) us to try to categorize those things.
0: I think that's the perfect place uh, probably to wrap up. Okay. Um, so Taylor, thank you again for, um, for taking the time to do this. And it was be- my pleasure. Before um, I let you go, is there anything about the book, which for listeners includes just a ton of material that we didn't have time to get to um, that you'd like to particularly highlight that we didn't, um, we didn't have a chance to talk about in this hour?
1: Um, well, I guess uh, uh, just a couple of things. I, sure. If you'll pardon my idealism and sort of my um, pretentiousness here, I I I really was ho- have hoped and still hope that the book will provoke uh, more honest and and sort of less outraged discussions between Japanese and Koreans about their shared history. You know where they can they can talk about these things honestly without getting uh, really upset about you know, perceived indignities or slights or insults or things like that. Because I, you know, I really do believe that it's impossible to narrate one country's history without reference to the other for better or worse. And, um, and I've seen plenty of evidence that when it's done in that way, that it, it can be really productive. The other thing I, I just want to say, I mentioned earlier the proceeds go to charity. Um, I support, um, a group, uh, an organization in Washington DC called the Tahira justice center that provides pro bono legal and social and medical services for immigrant women in the United States who are abused by their fathers, their brothers, their husbands. Um, and, uh, because of their special you know, status in the United States, not knowing what their rights are, no, not knowing what the laws are, they oftentimes feel trapped. And, uh, this uh, organization has found a really important way of uh, addressing their concerns, and I've supported them for several years, and all of my proceeds for the book are going to the Tehera Justice Center. And I, you know, if, if, if the things we talked about today aren't reason enough to get it, I hope that uh, um, that that gives some people some incentive. Um, and I was very pleased, to, uh, surprisingly, uh, I, I was shocked at, at my royalty check the first year and that I was able to send to them. So it was really, um, I appreciate everybody who's bought it and I hope more people will do it for that reason, if no other reason.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. As I said before, it's just an exceptionally well-written book in addition to being um, an exceptionally insightful and erudite book. And um, I hope lots of people will now read it. Um, and thank you so much for talking with us about
1: it. It was my pleasure, Carla. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks so much. See you next time.